بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على الرسول الكريم وبعد الحمد لله Today what I wanted to do is to take a look at some five major world events that have occurred within the last month. These world events that have occurred within the last month are going to go from the 21st of Dhul until the 21st of Dhul Hijjah. This is referring to the duration of the month of September of the Gregorian calendar. I'll be looking to make mention of Daesh and its onward advance in Iraq as well as in Sham, the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen, the U.S. and its continuing to block documentation detailing torture of detainees, the national alert regarding the rise of diseases that are now resistant to immunizations and to antibiotics, as well as the Hodge stampede that occurred at Minna. First thing is first, let us talk about what occurred on the 1st of September. On the 1st of September, Daesh marched into and destroyed historical relics in Iraq's Babylon ruins and in Syria's Palmyra. Let us discuss just how wrong this is, putting aside the fact that the United Nations, World Heritage Organizations, geologists, archaeologists, scholars of history are absolutely incensed with regard to this matter. Let's just ignore that for a moment. Here's what we need to understand. When the Prophet ﷺ came to the ruins of Thamud, he did not destroy those ruins because those ruins weren't being worshipped. They're old buildings and old places that were no longer being worshipped. The tombs, no one was worshipping them. He did nothing. Similarly, when the Prophet ﷺ saw other ruins and other places that had been devastated, he did not destroy those things because they had not, or they were not being worshipped, and he had not received any command to do that. We then have the companions moving out into the world after his death, and the companions arrive in Iraq. They build al-Basra and al-Kufa. They also march into 
what would later be the foundation of Dar es Salaam, which we know as Baghdad, which is actually an older name predating the Muslims' entrance into Iraq. There were old monuments present there. They came across the monuments of Babylon. They came across the old tombs of kings of the past, but they did nothing to them. Old Christian monasteries, they did nothing to them. They left them in place following the pattern of the Prophet and his example. In Sham, which covers Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine, and today's Israel, they came across the same types of ruins, but they did nothing. So this idea that any symbolage of the past has to be destroyed because it was worshipped as an idol before, well then what do we say about the pyramids of Giza? In fact, there are more pyramids in Sudan than there are in any other part of Africa. Yet the Muslims arriving there, these were companions. These weren't people who were corrupted over the vicissitudes of time by innovation or kufr or false cults. These were the companions and the early generations. They're the reasons why Egypt is Muslim. They did not feel that the destruction of all the artifacts, the mummies, the tombs, the pharaohs, was even necessary. In fact, according to one of the historical accounts, in the later ages of the Mamluk period, someone had torn off the beard of the Sphinx, and that person was punished with the death penalty for destruction of public property and making a public spectacle. Mamluks were faithful Muslims. So this was our attitude towards relics of the past, pieces of history. And this is our attitude that we should have today. If in 1400 years, nothing was done to these old relics, Carthage still stands today. It's a World Heritage Site. No one did anything to any of these old pieces of pieces of history. Then why would we destroy manuscripts today? To destroy tombs, to destroy monasteries, to destroy old buildings, to destroy old statues that aren't even being worshipped. What would the purpose be in doing this? It just shows the difference between the two religions, that of Islam and that of Salafia which our scholars in writing some 60 books of responsive literature have clearly mentioned that Muhammad Abdul Wahab's theology and that of Salafiyah is another religion. But that is another topic. On the 9th of September, we have the al Saud government leading an intervention in Yemen with 800 troops from Egypt to assist, to assist them in this, in this quest. As we discussed before, the problem between the Al Saud government and Yemen has theological 
underpinnings. The Huthiya are Zaydiya, which are a branch of Shia and are the closest of all the Shia groups to the Sunnis, and they are also the most resourceful and the most dedicated to their craft. They are seasoned warriors and have wanted to be free or at least possess an autonomous region since the communist invasions years ago. The Ada Saud kingdom does not want to risk Yemen, which is just under its foot, becoming autonomous or independent, because this will lead to competition in the area. Egypt has interfered as well because just across a small inlet of water is Yemen. And they are just as concerned as the Al Saud government because this would be a religious power, not a secular government. But what they all have in common is they're ignoring all of the blessings that the Prophet showered on this place through their airstrikes, ground invasions, provocation, targeting people, the death of civilians. They're completely forgetting the fact that the Prophet made supplication for Yemen in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari numerous times. The companions that came from Yemen, the blessings that we have, some of the great scholars of the past, who can forget Alawi al-Haddad, one of the great scholars of Yemen, and all the other, and, the, and everyone else in the galaxy of ulama and high-ranking scholars of fiqh that have come from this land. But in the haze of nationalism and jockeying for position and who's going to be the most influential power in the area. And part of it as well being told what to do by external powers. In the rush to do all these different things, they've forgotten that just like themselves, Yemen is a Muslim nation. Impoverished, but Muslim. And this is the most unfortunate aspect of all. And we ask that Allah might help them in their endeavors because the Yemenis, one thing about them that we will come to know is that they are not cowards and they are consistent. Remember, the communists thought to break their back in the 80s and they fought them until they were able to throw off communist oppression and reunify Yemen. It would not be that difficult at all, and it wouldn't be far-fetched at all, if they defeated both the Egyptians and the al saud led government. And they would be correct in doing so because they would be defending themselves. So let us, let us not be lost in the politics of what goes on and focus more on the revelation. On the 11th of September, we had the United States continuing to block the release of papers detailing torture in Guantanamo Bay by the U.S. authorities. The United States has been in, absolutely intractable and obtuse for refusing to release this paperwork 
because this paperwork would obviously detail what they have done. Now they've already informed the rest of the world before that they are using torture techniques, they are using other things, but the paperwork names people. And one thing that can be known about the United States is they try to protect their officials. The torture that is being meted out is recorded within this paperwork. Now I want to say something to the listener because it's important and I have to slow things down and state it in a certain way so it's not immediately offensive to your ears. It is actually a good thing that the Guantanamo Bay detainees are in Guantanamo Bay. I was actually very happy for them that they were there rather than being transferred to U.S. prisons. In Guantanamo Bay, they can be seen by their attorneys. There have been missions that have allowed their families to visit them. Some of the cells are on the beach where they're open to where weather can get in. They can have access to fresh air. The world's eyes are on Guantanamo Bay. If they were transferred to a supermax prison like Florence, which is 15 feet under the ground in Colorado, or Chino, or Pelicans Bay, or San Quentin, the world's eyes are not on these prisons, or the WCW Women's Prison, which is the highest number of female prisoners located in one place in the world. How often are they in the news? Are they able to even access their legal teams? People are executed in these prisons. They're stabbed to death. They're beaten to death with pipes. They're gang raped in showers. Prison gangs have formed to get drugs in and out. The most depraved aspects of humanity are there. Without any supervision, the WCW prison is a women's prison with men as guards. So women that are being strip-searched, stripped naked, women that are showering have male guards watching over them. All of these things that occur happen without the international community's eyes upon them. We know about what happens through former employees, exposés by uh, dedicated journalists, or close family members that may be in prison that report this information to us in person or through letters. This is how we know what's going on. It is better for the prisoners to be in Guantanamo Bay where they're actually treated and this sounds very queer and weird, 
but it is better for them to be there where they have the entire international community looking upon them than to be inside the continental United States. Amnesty International is still not allowed into the U.S. prisons. They weren't even allowed into the Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago when they wanted to see how the United States was treating blacks in America. When they attempted to gain access, before they could get in, they tore down a large section of the housing project, serendipitously, the one they wanted to investigate and look at, before they even got there. So, we need to understand that the United States is doing certain things, but at least we can see what they're doing. We can get lawyers and family and people involved. If these men were to be transferred to the continental United States, you might as well forget about them because they will be lost in the system. On the 18th of September, a national alert was issued by the United Kingdom regarding a strain of gonorrhea that is actually drug-resistant. Fifteen cases of this have been reported in northern England. Now, with the spread of venereal diseases, this is clearly connected to extramarital sex or fornication. And the Prophet wasallam, he said in the hadith in the Sahih of Bukhari that he recommended the youth to marry in their youth for it lowers the gaze and restrains them. This simple two-pronged advice shouldn't be forgotten by anyone. Marriage is the very bedrock of society. Now, if people are married, does this mean that there won't be any adultery or anyone stepping out on their wife? No. But the incidence of it being done when people are being sexually fulfilled in a committed relationship will decrease. Also, the idea that people gained from the 70s that if I just use protection that I can have as many sex partners as I desire. But then people decide to not use protection. Or people use, use the protection incorrectly. And so it fails in the case of condoms or certain jellies or spermicidal, spermicidal jellies. It fails. And so what this leads to is a failure in the contraceptive or a failure in the protection against the venereal diseases and then they still contract a disease. And by continuing to live promiscuous lives and to take part in reckless sexual encounters, these diseases metastasize. And when they metastasize, they worsen and they become resistant to antibiotics and all different types of drugs used to treat them to the point that now those drugs those antibiotics will no longer be effective. 
So men that do step out on their wives, boyfriend and girlfriend relationships that are what are called open relationships, people will pay an ultimate price for this. And this runs with a hadith that is in Sahih al-Jamia by Imam al-Suyuti where the Prophet وسلم, he said a time will come in which your the time will come in which there shall be illnesses and diseases the like of which your ancestors had not encountered before. The gonorrhea that is here today is not the gonorrhea of the 1960s. Drug specialists today can say that the marijuana of today is not the marijuana of the 60s and 70s. So the impact that it's going to have will be different. The gonorrhea and the chlamydia of today is not the gonorrhea and chlamydia of the 60s and the 70s. So the outcome and the impact upon the population will be totally different. And who knows where this will head in the future. On the 24th of September, we had the Hajj stampede at Minna. This left more than a th- when 700 people dead and, a thousand in- and more than 1,000 injured. As I listen to this story unfold, <clears throat> part of what struck me was the anger of the Muslims regarding this matter that stating everything should have been done to prevent this. Something should have been done to prevent this. This should have been done and this never would have happened. No one should be dying on Hajj at all. All of this is being said without realizing that the Hajj is a one-month event where people will arrive early, wait for two weeks to prepare themselves and go into the Hajj. There may be those who arrive just for the Hajj, in which case they'll be there for four days and more. But there is hiking involved, there is walking, there is exposure to the sun for periods of time. You are hiking up altitudes and coming down. And you don't expect for there to be any deleterious any deleterious circumstances while you're doing so. When I went on when I went on the Hajj six years ago, it rained in Minna when I was there in the tent city. And some people were staying on the mountains just above us and 20 died trying to get down from the mountains. Was that the fault of the government? That 20 died trying to get down from their tents from the mountains? What could the government have done with the limestone of those mountains? Nothing. Installed a ramp? What could they have done? You have millions of people in one area. Millions. And these millions of people have different types of illnesses, constitution, physical strength, 
languages and some of them have already come with their own medication that they have to take and you're expecting that nothing at all should happen no one should be ill no one should be injured at all this is not only unrealistic but it's also contrary to what we know of the revealed law because the Prophet وسلم, he said of those that die on Hajj to bury them in their ihram for they will come on the day of resurrection glorifying Allah and saying the invocation of the Hajj this means that there will be people that will die on Hajj this is precisely what this means there will be people that die on the Hajj and the people that go on Hajj we have to ask rather than constantly pointing the finger at some external factor we have to point the thumb inwards at ourselves did we prepare at all before we went on Hajj how much walking do the people that go on Hajj particularly from the Anglosphere where we are leading some of us a very sedentary life we don't run at all we don't walk at all we don't lift weights at all exercise is foreign to many of us then we go on Hajj and fall ill or something happens and we blame we blame the government no what occurred there we must bear responsibility for some of it number one number two we have to understand that there will be every Hajj some people who die they might be ill and they die they might be old and they die they might be sick in the hospital and they die in the hospital and thirdly we also have to understand that there are certain things that Allah has ordained Allah is mentioned of himself in Surah Al-Buruj near the end of the surah فَعَالٌ لِمَا يُرِيدٌ he is the doer of what he wills in addition to that everything has its ajal its appointed time and so if everyone has their appointed time are we saying that no one who goes on Hajj is meant to die are we saying that no one's appointed time for death can come on Hajj some of those people who go are meant to die at that time you can take any precaution that you want to but if someone's death is meant to come it will come and there's nothing we can do about it you can do all the planning that you like but someone's death that is meant to come will surely come so when we go on the Hajj we should try to remember three things number one we should try to get in the best shape of our lives before we go I was about I wasn't 100% but I was around 75 to 80 percent before I went I trained consistently I did a lot of extra walking more than I normally did 
I did a lot of different things. I did push-ups, I did squats, I did as much as I could to try to prepare myself and simulate the possible circumstances I might find myself in while on Hajj. And to my pleasant surprise, I was prepared. There was no time on the Hajj journey I fell ill, alhamdulillah. There was no time on the Hajj journey that I was injured. The only thing was the dustiness of my clothes, but I was able to change those. But I was able to deal with the stresses and the and the strains of Hajj. I ate moderately. I drank water instead of carbonated drinks. I didn't go to any of the fast food restaurants. I took my time. I slept as much as I could to gain my strength. In the heat of the day, I sought shelter. I did extra prayers. I did things such as this to try to balance out your time. I saw people go there and they drank carbonated drinks and ate fast food. And they're already unhealthy as it is. They're drinking a carbonated drink that dehydrates the body under a blazing hot sun in a 100 degree day. Eating foods packed with monosodium glutamate in winter weather of great heat. This time now, the Hajj was closer to the summer and the fall. So it was even hotter. No, it's not the whole world's fault that people don't take care of themselves. It is those people's fault. And I would say that we as Muslims have to consider this. The second thing I would say to consider is that your time is already predetermined. When it comes, it comes. The third thing is, is also to remember to take precautions. Don't wait for someone else to take precautions for you. You take precautions. So it is with that that I say, أقول قبل هذا أستغفر الله لي ولكم أستغفر الله إن الله غفور رحيم رحيم رحيم